Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again that You have spoken to us in Your Word. That in the pages of Scripture, we do not find merely the words of men, but the words of God Almighty. We ask, Lord, that as Your Word is preached and declared this morning, that Your Spirit, He would be here, that He would impart life. That we would look upon and behold the glory of Christ Jesus, who is King of Kings, and worship Him and love Him all the more. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I have to admit that I'm very eager to get to Christmas because that means the series will be over. <laughs> and uh, my wife shares that sentiment. We were talking about that last night. But as we get to the second to last message here on a Christian view of government, now we couldn't, we couldn't do this without looking at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is one of those foundational texts, and it reminds us that the buck stops somewhere. There's always something or someone at the top. Right? And to put it in biblical terms, there's always a God of every system. There's something functioning as God, even if it's not God himself. There's always someone or someone, something that is at the top of the food chain that's making uh, the decisions. And more often than not, in our fallen world, that God of the system is often a false God. It's an idol. It's something that is not God himself. And for that reason, us Christians need to garner in our heart uh, to become more like Gideon, who went and tore down the idols of the town. Granted, he waited until everyone was asleep and it was dark out to do it, but at least he got around to tearing down the idols of his people. So as we approach today's sermon... We acknowledge that for many today, God has to be and must, like this is the first principle, God must be kept out of the government. He must be kept out. And that sentiment is true of many both inside of the church uh, and outside of the church. And if you're someone like me who's spent a fair bit of time studying history, you have to ask the question, where did, I, where did that idea come from? Where did we get that, that firm conviction As we walk through the message today, you'll see that that was not the firm conviction of our founding fathers of America. It was not the firm conviction of the Protestant forefathers, uh, but it's rather comes from a rabid form of secularism that has been dominant for about the last 75 to 100 years. And secularism is just the belief uh, that there are areas of life that are to be utterly free from religion, utterly free from God. And if we're really paying attention you would note that secularism is actually a heresy or a false teaching that branches off off of Christianity. If you think back to Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God, the Roman government wouldn't have recognized that distinction. The distinction between the church and the state is a uniquely Christian idea. And in the Christian West, that got bastardized and perverted into what is now modern secularism. And secularism basically puts up a sign and says, God is not allowed here. This area is is God-free. But as I just told you, there's always a God over that system. You can say God is not here, but then you're going to put something else in His place. And here's the other side of the equation. If God is not God in a certain area, then He is not God at all. Who gets to place limits upon the Almighty? The answer, of course, is no one. 
But the false gods that often come into view here generally today are the self. Instead of God, we like to put me at the top. I become my own God. Or in the political realm, the will of the people. What's the God of our system? Well, it is whatever a bunch of me's decide that it becomes the God of the system. But the majority will of a group of lawless rebels is no more a God than just one lawless rebel all by himself. And yet, I fear that many evangelicals are just as terrified about having God involved in government as the atheists are. And that should puzzle you a little bit. If you believe in God, you believe that God is almighty, then why am I so afraid of God having a say in certain areas of life? To be sure, that often comes from looking back in history and seeing that the church and state have often been married in a very unhealthy and oppressive way. Right? When you read church history, you realize that our forefathers came here because the church and state was unhealthily married in Europe and they try, were trying to escape that. But yet for centuries, America tried to walk a delicate balance between kicking God out of government and also realizing his necessity. And I believe for that reason, because America achieved some level of balance there, America was largely a force for tremendous good in world history. Not perfect, not sinless, obvious glaring problems, but compared to all of their colleagues, much to be preferred. The first charters of our nation mention God and mention Jesus. The Mayflower Compact, one of those first governing documents in the New World, says this, In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, by the grace of the God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King and Defender of the Faith and Company, having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. You want to know why they came here? They came for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. In 1643, a confederation between the colonies of Massachusetts, New Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven affirmed this statement. It says this, quote, We all came into these parts of America with the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties thereof with purity and peace and for preserving and propagating the truth and liberties of the gospel. First Constitution of Connecticut reads, that the scriptures hold forth a perfect rule for the direction and government of all men in all duties, which they are to perform to God and men, as well as in families and commonwealths, as in, his, as in matters of the church. The founding document of Pennsylvania reads, Laws are, best preserve, are, are as best preserve the true Christian and civil liberty, in opposition to all unchristian licentious and unjust practices whereby God may have his due, Caesar his due, and people their due from tyranny and oppression. Unless you think I'm just citing a bunch of documents no one cares about anymore. Every single state constitution of our 50 states today, everyone still has some mention of God or the divine in it. Whether that be California or Alabama. Every single one of our state constitutions mentions God. I'm not making these things up. You can go check it for yourself. It's true that our federal constitution only mentions God in its date, the year of our Lord, but it does allude to Christianity where it restricts certain practices on Sunday. We're not going to do certain things on Sunday. Why wouldn't we do things on Sunday? Go figure. 
Must be because they didn't believe in God. But the Declaration of Independence does mention our Creator, the supreme judge of the world. It appeals to a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. John Adams, a signer of that declaration, and the second president wrote this. The general principles on which the founding fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. The evidence is so overwhelming to this effect, I'm just skimming the surface here, that in 1892 there was a Supreme Court case, and the Supreme Court ruled in 1892 that the United States is indeed a Christian nation. Fast forward about 100 years to 1982, Newsweek, a magazine. Well, do they even publish a magazine anymore? used to be a magazine. 1982 wrote this. Newsweek is no Christian nationalist thing, in case you were wondering. They said, For centuries, the Bible has exerted an unrivaled influence on American culture, politics, and social life. Now, historians are discovering that the Bible, perhaps even more than the Constitution, is our founding document. It continues, Ours is the only country deliberately founded on a good idea. That good idea combines a commitment to man's inalienable rights with the Calvinist belief, those evil Calvinists, with the Calvinist belief in an ultimate moral right and sinful man's obligation to do good. These articles of faith embodied in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution literally govern our lives today. End quote. I could go on, but that was written in 1982, just about 200 years after our founding. And I would like to ask you a very simple question. What has changed since 1982 about our history? Absolutely nothing. The same facts remain the same. You're just lied to now. People try to reinterpret history in a vast array, a different array of things to try to tell you that Christianity really didn't have anything to do with this. And people who make the argument otherwise are considered to be uh, simpletons, uneducated. But I put forward just this smattering of quotes to tell you, you can either believe what you see with your own eyes, or you can believe a bunch of people with an agenda. It's really clear the historical facts have not changed. So with that brief historical diversion, the question becomes, okay, Levi, I get it. That's what our founding fathers did, but that doesn't make it right. And I will grant you that, that point. They got a lot of things wrong as well. America is fallible. She has gotten things wrong over her history. Some things terribly wrong. So the question becomes for Christians is what role should God, should Christ play in the state? And that role has to be determined not by history, but by Scripture. What does Scripture say about these things? The only reason I point out those historical facts is to show you that where we are today culturally is abnormal. The view I'm preaching here today is not abnormal, historically speaking. It's mostly mainstream, what people have believed for centuries. And if we're in a day and time where we can't even know what a boy is or a girl is, that maybe cultural standards today aren't the best measure for judging what is right and what is wrong. In Scripture, Psalm chapter 2 and Revelation 1 provide us with the answer to the question. What role does Christ play in all of this? And Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And as this is developed, we see that these, these nations and the leaders of the nations, the national leaders, are in view here. It continues, The kings of the earth 
set themselves and the rulers take counsels together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what is David talking about here? Well, he's talking about kings and rulers and nations are raging against the Lord. And we should note several things here. One is Psalm 2 is one of the most cited psalms in the New Testament. So the New Testament loves uh, this psalm and is citing it all the time. Second, you should note that what is going on here is in the present tense in the Old Testament. It's not looking forward to some future reality here. What are the nations doing right now? They're raging against the Lord and against his anointed. And so this is going on during the Old Covenant age as they sought to burst their bonds from the Lord, that the Lord currently had bonds upon them. And I think third, you should note here that these nations in view here are pagan or secular nations. This isn't Israel. The psalm isn't directed at Israel here saying, Israel isn't listening to the God it's in covenant with. It is to all the other nations. You're not listening to God. You are plotting against his authority. God has, as we can say here, not just a past reality or a future reality, but that God has authority over the nations, over kings, over rulers, over congresses, governors, presidents, the people, constitutions, prime ministers. Right now, God has authority over those things. If God did not have that authority, they would not need to burst the bonds. They would not need to rebel, present tense. If the government was to be wholly secular, with no God allowed here, then there would be no need for them to rip those bonds apart. None whatsoever. In fact, modern secularism, I think, falls directly under the umbrella of what these nations are doing. They're rebelling against God. They're saying God's not allowed here. God, you don't get to tell me what to do. We're not Israel. We can do whatever we want. Well, No, God says you really can't. This is where we see the Lord's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So God literally laughs at their rage. He laughs at their attempt to burst their bonds. And it's not just any laugh, it's a laugh of derision. If you don't know what that word means, it means that he is mocking and ridiculing them as they try to do this. He's making fun of them. So yes, God does have a sense of humor. And sometimes that sense of humor is directed at the stupidity of man. Why are you doing that? This is what we often miss. Because we desperately want to believe that in some ways we can be independent from God. That man can be self-sufficient. That we can do things on our own. And whether we're doing that at a national level or an independent level, God laughs at it. No, you can't. You are, this very moment, utterly dependent upon God for every breath you take. Every hair on your head, every cell in your body, every atom and molecule that makes you up is millisecond by millisecond dependent upon him for its existence. You don't get to tell him where the boundaries are. He gets to tell you. You don't don't get to tell him that you're independent. He's independent of you. You are dependent upon him every moment. And so God raises up rulers and he casts them down. 
He delegates authority to them and he removes it from them. And he does all of this according to his perfect plan. And when we rebel, when you and I try to rebel against an almighty, all-powerful, ever-present God, we are like a little ant who takes a twig and fashions out of that twig a little stick into a sword and then tries to go attack in Abram's tank. Good luck. That's why he's laughing in derision. It's not a fair fight. You don't get to win. It's absurd on its face. This is what it is like when the nations rage against God. So most Christians are really fine with admitting that God has authority over everything, even the government, as long as that doesn't have any practical implication for you and me in this life. Yeah, sure, God has authority over there. What, what does that mean for how we should govern? Oh, nothing. Okay. Well, that's a kind of meaningless authority that is, well, meaningless. It's an authority in name only, but makes no demands on how we should function. But Psalm 2 will not leave us there as it pushes us past our comfort level. Look at verses 10 through 11. After he introduces his anointed one, the king, the Messiah, he says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So God warns the people and he commands the kings of the earth to serve him. Not just one day serve him. Not just serve him in the old covenant. But serve him now. Serve me. O kings of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I have to reiterate here again, these are pagan nations that we are speaking to, whether it be Babylon or Assyria or the Philistines. That's the call that's going out to the nations. Serve me, O kings, with fear. He tells the unbelieving nations that they had better start believing Again, I get no hint here of secularism whatsoever. And the word serve here should stand out to you as we've been going through this series because the state we saw in Romans 13 is described as God's servant. Why does the state exist? Well, it exists to serve God. The governing officials are servants of the Lord. And God in Psalm 2 is basically saying, your God-appointed role is to serve me, and so therefore, do your job, and serve me. Obey me. A servant must recognize who his master is, and he must submit to his master, otherwise he will incur his judgment. And so God gives a simple yet profound command. Submit to me, and submit to my chosen king. And he tells them to do it now before it is too late, before the the wrath of God falls upon them. And this is a stunning rebuke, I think, for anyone who desires to have God wholly left out of the state. God says, serve me, O kings, O rulers. Theologians and pastors have a way of trying to do interpretive gymnastics around this text, but I put it in front of you plainly. What does that mean for the kings of the earth to serve the Lord? If you can come up with something that means God isn't a part of that, you must be pretty flexible. You can see it for yourself. What does God demand of the rulers? To pretend that he doesn't exist? No. To govern by their own authority? No. To do whatever they want? No. To rely upon natural law alone? No. 
to stick their finger in the air and to see which way the wind is blowing and what the people really want. No. He demands that they submit to him and to do so now. Into all of this enters the person of Christ. Psalm 2 is widely recognized as a messianic psalm. That is, it points forward to Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. The anointed one is referenced here. The word Messiah just means the one who is anointed. It's the same term that in the Greek is Christ. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. Christ is God's response to the futile plans of the nations. The psalm opens and they're raging against God and His authority. And then it goes to, well, I'm going to set my king on Mount Zion. We pick it up in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Then the rulers, um, or then to the rulers God says this, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So the solution to the rage of the nations is God. The solution to the rebellious kings is that God sends his son, Jesus Christ, and he will inherit the nations, and he will be the king of the whole earth. Christ will rule them, it says, with a rod of iron and break them into pieces. And thus God encourages the kings of the earth, before that happens, to kiss the Son. One of the many citations of this psalm in the New Testament is the passage we spent time in last week, Revelation chapter 19. We read of how Christ will smash the kings into pieces. Revelation 19, 15-16. Speaking of Christ, when he returns, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The title King of Kings, I'm fairly convinced, comes straight from Psalm chapter 2. And more vividly, it says here that he will have his rod of iron, and that rod of iron will result in the crushing of the rebellious kings at the end of all things. And so throughout the New Testament, we get this picture of Christ, who is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, but that he has that authority right now. Now, I've said to you guys throughout many different series that there's this tension all throughout the Bible of the already and the not yet in this age. That there are truths that are already true right now for you. You are forgiven of your sins, but there are also a sense in which it's not yet fully true that you will still stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. You are already born again, but you are not yet what you fully will be when Christ returns. The same is true of Christ's um, kingdom and his lordship. But yet, all throughout the New Testament, especially after his resurrection, we have this talk of the Son's ultimate authority. Jesus says to his disciples as he's about to ascend into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some authority. Not all authority in the church has been given to me. Not all spiritual authority has been given into me, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That Christ right now has all authority. Not some of it, but all of it. 
Then there's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We spent some time in the book of Colossians right before this. We read that in everything was made by Christ, everything exists for Christ, and that Christ is preeminent over everything, and that by his blood, he is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians 1 that says this, In Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age that is to come, he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ right now is the head of all things in this age and the one to come. And that leads us to Revelation 1. As that book opens, written in the first century, how does it describe Christ? It's a revelation of Christ. It's revealing who Jesus is. And Revelation 1.5 says this, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. The ruler of the kings on earth. Christ right now is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's not the king of those kings who are dead and in heaven or hell. He's not the king of those who will be in the age to come, though he is still that king. The emphasis here is that he is the king over the kings of the earth right now. Now, this, of course, is what it means to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So then the question becomes, okay, the Bible says this is who Jesus is right now. What impact should that have upon how the government functions? That's a difficult question. It's one that requires a lot of careful thinking. Obvious mistakes have been, mar- have been made throughout history on this. And those mistakes, whether it be the marrying of the church and the state in an unhealthy way, or the error we're going towards now, which is totally ignoring God and going for some holy, secular, and autonomous state, whether that be something like the USSR and Millions Dead, the French Revolution, and the guillotine, and the Church of Reason that led to the reign of terror, and then the oppression of Napoleon, the dictator, or today's modern China in its atheistic state and its human rights violations, I can point to problems on both sides of this equation. But we do ourselves a disservice to think that there really are only two options. That we either set up an Old Testament theocracy or we set up some sort of atheistic state. There's a whole lot of ground uh, between those two. I think it's safe to say, biblically speaking, in the New Covenant, It's very clear that marrying the church and the state is a bad idea and it is wrong. In fact, even in the Old Covenant, there was a separation between the government and the church. Kings got themselves in trouble when they did the jobs of the priests. There was still some level of separation there. But the New Covenant clearly turns the people of God into an international community. There is no one singular nation state that now has a covenant with God. It's now offered to all people. And the church, we read, bears the keys to that covenant. That if you want to enter into covenant with God today, you are not born physically into it, you are born spiritually. And the church, little churches like Christ Bible Church all around the world, bear the keys. 
when we welcome you into membership of this church, we are saying, we believe this person to be a part of the kingdom. And one day, if we have to practice church discipline, we are saying, we believe this person is not a part of the kingdom. This is the keys that God has given the church. He has not given the church a sword. We do not take the sword out and say, convert or die. That's for other religions to do. The state, conversely, bears the sword and not the keys. The the state has no business saying this person is a Christian or this person isn't. This is the right Christian doctrine. This isn't. Rather, the the state's job is to bear the sword and to punish evildoers. And so, the church should not head the state and the state should not head the church. They are different spheres of authority. Give to Caesar his and God his. And so while the new covenant does clarify that distinction, it does not, and this is what we need to hear, just because it clarifies the distinction between the church and the state, the new covenant does not lessen God or Christ's authority over the state. The church has no authority over the state. The state has no authority over the church. Christ has authority over both. There's a third path to walk. As we move from the old covenant to the new, we are always moving from lesser realities to greater realities. In no way can we make the argument that Christ's authority over the state gets less in the New Covenant than it is in the Old, where Psalm 2 was written. And I believe this is the message of Matthew 28, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, Hebrews chapter 2, that Christ has authority over all things, including the state. And so this is the third way. The state should submit and recognize that Christ is King of Kings. Every faithful church, every faithful family, every faithful school, every faithful individual is called to bend the knee to Christ and admit that He is Lord and King over everything. And this is true of every king, president, prime minister, every constitution, and every government is called to bend the knee. The state is God's servant under the authority of of Christ, And it is good and righteous for the state's founding documents to affirm that God is God and Christ is King. And that upon that foundation, the state has legitimate authority and a limited authority. And that's why I began where I did this morning. Our founding fathers got that and they wrote it into a lot of their early documents. It's not some foreign crazy concept that, that has led to just abject craziness and tyranny. In fact, ignoring God always leads to tyranny. The problems we have today are not because we believe the lordship of Christ over the state too much. It's because we've believed it too little. And we've set up false gods in his place. I have a lot of respect for our founding fathers, despite the obvious blind spots they had. But I think they could have been stronger on this point in the founding documents that the state's authority is precisely limited because it is not God, and Christ is. They only assumed, they assumed that because they lived in a society and a culture that was thoroughly Christianized. And it worked out for quite some time, until recently. Christ is the King of Kings, and the state is his servant. And every servant should recognize his master. And in its laws, a state should limit its authority by recognizing that it is not the chief authority, that the state is not a savior, but a servant. 
And that includes the state putting into writing that God is God, though it has no right to enforce belief upon its citizens. There's a sharp distinction between the two. And so this psalm ends with a command in the context of a warning. Listen to these words in verses 9 through 12. He speaks, God here speaks of what Christ will do to the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want you to hear the tone of this warning. This Jesus, this anointed one, O kings of the earth, his wrath is quickly kindled and he will break you into pieces. That's the warning that leads to the command, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun before it is too late. There's a reason why the Jews of Jesus' day expected their Messiah to be a conquering king who would rule over the world. It is not because they completely misunderstood the Old Testament. They understood it better than most Christians do today, with the exception of missing Christ. But that is exact, but they understood, or Psalm 2 makes it clear that it, this is exactly what the Messiah will do one day. He will conquer the whole world. What they got wrong was the when he was going to do it, not in his first coming, but his second, and the how. They missed that the need for Christ to ascend to the throne was through the glorification that comes through his suffering and his sacrifice upon the cross. They missed that his initial conquering would come only through the cross and that the kingdom would not be just Jewish, but for every tribe, nation, and tongue, for everyone who calls upon his name. But make no mistake, the sword from the Messiah will eventually come. And he will conquer throughout the entire world. And so this call goes out to every person, every man, woman, and child, to every school, every business, every community, every church, and every government. Kiss the sun. This is his blood-bought universe. Every molecule, every corner, every everything is his. This is a call that goes out to all individually and corporately to submit to the Son, to declare that He is Lord and Savior. That His blood purchased everything and His blood is renewing this world. So kiss the Son while you can. In the ancient world, this kissing was generally done by a lesser king as he would come to a higher king. And surely it was not a romantic kiss. He would fall down on his knees and kiss the feet of the higher king, paying homage to him and begging for mercy, begging for his protection. Philippians 2 tells us that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So brothers and sisters, you are told to build your faith upon this reality, that Christ is Lord and that one day everyone will admit that. And for now, he simply invites you to do it willingly. One day it will be done by force. For that will happen. The kings of the earth will flood into one day the new, the new Zion to pay homage to Christ. Some will fall to his sword before that, but some others 
will be converted and they will bend the knee and acknowledge who Christ is. And so the encouragement for you is to do it now. Not many of us in here will be kings of the earth, thankfully. But the, sh- the same call goes to you. Confess Him as Lord now. Don't wait for that day. Confess your sins and throw yourself upon Christ in faith, for He is merciful. And wherever you go, acknowledge that this is Christ's world and that He is retaking it. That He is the Lord, not just of the church, but over the whole universe. Bend the knee and worship Him. Kiss the Son now before it is too late, for He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word and that You have given us a glimpse of the future. The reality that we are inescapably heading towards. Your kingdom. We ask earnestly this day, Lord, that that day would come soon. That your kingdom would come upon this earth. That your will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And that we might look upon it in glory and in rejoicing for the kingdom that will never end will be fully here. Lord, come quickly. But until that day, may you strengthen your people on earth. May we be emboldened by knowing that Christ is right now the King of Kings and that He rules over the nations with a rod of iron and that He has fixed the day upon which He will return. Grant us that faith and may that strengthen us each and every day. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.